Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. We're taking our Bibles this morning and we're going to the book of Mark and we're finding our place in Mark chapter 15 this morning, the book of Mark and chapter number 15. And we've been working our way right through the gospel of Mark here on Sunday mornings. And we're coming this morning to chapter number 15 as we finish out these final moments here in the life of Jesus Christ. You know, there's a kind of, of joking among friends that, that can be enjoyable. How many of you know it's, it's sometimes good to have your friends or your family kid around or joke around with you just to remind you not to take yourself so serious, right? And sometimes we need that in our lives. We need to be reminded that you, know, you and I, in the end, are just human beings. We're sinful people. And oftentimes we're tempted to, to think highly of ourselves. And there's a, there's a joking around with each other that can remind ourselves that we aren't quite as serious as we think we were. And on that note, we have an alarm going off. We're going to get that taken care of just a moment. I'm certain of it. Let's get some help here, Evan, right here. Thank you. Don't take yourself so serious. That's what that whole illustration right there was about. Our culture, for the most part, only makes fun of people who are powerful. But that wasn't true during the time of the Roman Empire. If you lived in Rome 2,000 years ago and you decided to insult the emperor, it would be like signing your death sentence. In fact, in Rome, they didn't insult the powerful, they only insulted the weak. And one of the ways that we know this is because of what they did at the crucifixion. Death on a Roman cross was always reserved for the weakest members of society, the defenseless members. It was for people who were slaves, thieves, commoners, prisoners of war. And the Romans used the cross in such a way that it brought not just death, but embarrassment, shame to the person who was being crucified. And that's really the theme of the text this morning. It's not simply that Jesus dies on the cross, but it's the mockery, the insulting that Jesus endures, that he experiences there on the cross on that day. There's not a lot of time in the Bible that's given to how Jesus died. For as monumental of a moment that it is in history and even in the scriptures, really you get one or two verses in each of the Gospels about how Jesus died. What's given more in the Gospels, more attention, is why Jesus died. 
It's not simply how he died, but it's why did he die? And the reason for this is that the writers of the Bible, the writers of the gospel, are not simply trying to stir up in you and me some pity for Jesus. They're trying to strengthen our faith. They're trying to help us realize what is ours in Christ. And at the same time, we would be negligent if we just passed over the the physical suffering, the psychological suffering, the physical abuse that Jesus endured for us. You'll, You'll remind yourself where we are in the story. Jesus has been arrested from the garden of Gethsemane. He's been tried and found guilty of blasphemy by the religious leaders of the day. They had blindfolded Jesus at the end of that court and they began to punch him, the Bible says, in the face. They've taken Jesus from a religious courtroom and they've paraded him down the street to a civil courtroom. So not only did they find Jesus guilty of blasphemy, but they also found Jesus guilty of treason. And they did this in front of Pilate. The Bible says that Pilate found no fault in Jesus, but the crowds demanded for Barabbas to be set free, a criminal, a murderer, a thief, an insurrectionist, and for Jesus to be found guilty and crucified on the cross. And they've cried out for this from the street, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate lacks the courage to do what he knows in his spirit and in his heart is right to do. He releases to the crowd Barabbas and he sentences Jesus to die on the cross. And the verse is verse 15. It's tucked away neatly in the text. And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus. And when he had scourged him, To be crucified. To be scourged is to be whipped with an item that was called a flagellum. We would understand it in our culture as the cat of nine tails. Had a large wooden handle on the end of it. There were leather straps that ran off six feet, eight feet in length on the top side of it. In the straps were embedded sharp pieces of metal and hooks. They embedded them there in order to rip the flesh off of their victim. The victim would be tied to a post or perhaps have his hands ran through chains. He would, his body would be pulled tight, his feet suspended just off the ground. And as the straps of that cat of nine tails were applied to his back. His muscles would be lacerated. His veins would be cut. His his internal organs would be exposed. He would be quite literally turned inside out. The goal of scourging was to inflict as much pain as possible on their victim. But hopefully not to kill him. It was a horrific event in every kind of way imaginable. Many men 
Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us many men died at the scourging post. They never even made it to the crucifixion. Jesus is young. He's in his 30s. Jesus is strong physically. He's a carpenter. He's a construction worker. He walked a lot, so he's in good physical condition. So he doesn't die there while he's being scourged. His death will be in just a few hours from this moment. But Jesus is bleeding profusely. His, his body is laboring to survive. Imagine being up all night long and then enduring this. Delivered him. Look at, look at the text. Delivered Jesus and had him scourged. This is the first half of the crucifixion. This is just the beginning. There's a theme that runs from this point forward in how Jesus will be mocked. How he will be insulted. How he will be laughed at, humiliated, shamed. The soldiers here in verse 16 to verse 20 are mocking Jesus, spitting on him, making fun of him. Skip all the way down to verse number 24. The passerbys, the people on the road, mocking, making fun of Jesus just the same. Picking up our reading in verse 16, the Bible says, And the soldiers led him away into the hall called the Praetorium. And they called together the whole band. They clothed him with purple. They plaited a, a crown of thorns. They, they put it on his head. And began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him on the head with the reed. They did spit upon him, and bowing their knees, worshipped him. And when they had mocked him and took the purple robe from him and put his own clothes on him, they led him out to crucify him. The mocking of Jesus takes place in these texts. The mocking is best seen probably in the crown that they made for him. It's a crown of thorns, something I'm certain you've heard of before. And Jesus was innocent before he suffered, but here in this passage we're seeing that Jesus is now even submissive while he suffers. And what are they making fun of Jesus for? Are they making fun of Jesus for the Sermon on the Mount? No. Are they making fun of Jesus for being a wise and good teacher? No. Are they making fun of Jesus for having performed miracles? No. Are they making fun of Jesus for having hung out with sinners and tax collectors and people of ill repute? No. They're making fun of Jesus for the claims that Jesus had made about himself. The claims that he was the king of kings. The claim that he was the savior of the world. The, the claim that he was there to replace the temple. 
If Jesus hadn't said those things, then this would be completely different. Jesus is suffering these insults because of the magnitude of his claims. In fact, that's the first thing that I want you to realize this morning. But why are they insulting Jesus like this? Why are they treating Jesus in this way? They're treating Jesus in this way because of the magnitude, the the depth, the bigness, the awesomeness, the audacity of the, the claims that Jesus had made about himself. If Jesus says, I I am just a teacher who is here pointing people to God. Well, then they would say, well, maybe that's true and maybe that's not true. Maybe you are that or maybe you are not that. But when Jesus says, not simply that I am pointing people to God, But Jesus has said about himself, I am the only way to God. And now all of a sudden, they treat Jesus with such derision. They treat Jesus with such hostility. And Jesus is not simply saying, I am a son of God. Jesus is saying, I am the son of God. And Jesus is not simply saying, I will tell you what God has to say. Jesus is saying, I will tell you the very words of God himself because to hear me is to hear the Father because I and the Father are one. You see, you need to understand that the claims that Jesus made about himself is not simply that he knew of God, but Jesus is saying, I am God. I am God the Son, God wrapped in human flesh. And there is no way to God the Father except through me. Jesus is saying, I am the savior of the world. I am the king of kings. And either you hear Jesus say that, and you have the response like many of the disciples did, which said, well, if you are the Christ, then where can we go? Who can we turn to who has the very words of life? Or you respond like these Pharisees, Sadducees did in their day of saying, well, then you are all the way out. Because with Jesus, it is simply that it is an all or nothing kind of a deal. He is either who he claimed he was, the son of God and the only way to God himself, or Jesus is a lunatic. Jesus is either the Lord of all, or Jesus has lied all along the way of his earthly existence. It is not one or the other. It is is this or it is that. It is all or nothing. And it is those claims that Jesus has made that has brought this conclusion to where it is. If we're honest, there are some times that Jesus says things in his word to us that we don't like what Jesus said either. Because they force us into an all or nothing kind of a situation. You see, many people have 
Many people say that they have, they have problems with the church or they have problems with Christians because the church or Christians say this or say that. But oftentimes their problem is not really with Christians and their problem is not really with the church. Oftentimes their problem is with God. Because God has spoken. His word is true. And all that God has said is true. And what Paul is writing to the New Testament church and telling them is he is simply saying, let God be true and every man a liar. He is saying, claim and cling and hold and believe the word of God to be true regardless of how you may feel about it in your own individual life and regardless of what society or culture may be pushing down your throat, claim the promises and the words of God as true. It's an all or nothing kind of a thing. And many people, when it comes to their relationship with God, they want a little bit of Jesus and a lot of themselves. Well, I, I want Jesus on Sunday morning. But I want to do my thing on Friday night. And it never works that way with Christ. It shouldn't surprise you and me that Christ would make such a demand, that Christ would demand such exclusivity and relationship with him. This isn't surprising that Christ would demand that of us. It's what we demand of others. 22 years ago, I stood on a stage similar to this one in a church kind of like this one. I walked down the back aisle. I found my place here on the front. A bunch of groomsmen and friends and family members joined me. Amanda's friends lined up on that side of the stage. And then those doors opened and out stepped Amanda in her beautiful white wedding, get, uh, beautiful white wedding dress. Oh, man, I about lost it. How many of you know you, how many of you gentlemen know you married way, way up, right? Just don't let my wife know that I married up and she married way down, okay? She came down the aisle, she stood right here, we took the traditional Christian vows, and in those vows I said something like this to her, for better, for worse. How many of you know it's always for worse? For richer, for poorer. How many of you know it's always poorer? In sickness and in health, in poverty and wealth, forsaking all others. Remember that? I keep myself only for you so long as I shall live. And imagine, in that moment, had I gone and forsaking all others except on Saturday because I need time with my guys. Imagine how Amanda would have responded in that moment. It would have been a straight right hook right there. Demand, the relationship demands the exclusivity. So we understand it when it comes to human relationships, husband-wife relationships. We understand it when it comes to even dating relationships. It's all or it's nothing. But for some reason, whenever it comes to our relationship with Christ, we think that it can be this half in, half out kind of a thing. Jesus writes to the churches in Revelation, says a very shocking statement. He says, I wish, I would. He says, I, I, I wish, I, I would rather, 
I would prefer that you were either hot or cold, but you are lukewarm. And it makes me sick to my stomach. Now, oftentimes in our lives, we think, well, that, that, he can't possibly have meant that. Jesus can't possibly have meant cold. No, no, when he said cold, is a very interesting Greek word. The word cold, it means cold. That's what it means. He says, I, I wish you were all in, hot, or I wish you were nothing, cold. But you're playing this game right here in the middle. And it's lukewarm. They treat Jesus the way they do because of the magnitude of his claims. Joshua says to the children of Israel there as they make a choice of whether they will serve the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. Joshua tells them, choose today who you will serve. He says, I'm drawing that line in the sand. As for me and as for my house, we're going to serve the Lord. But if God is God, then serve him. If Baal is God, then serve him. But you better decide who is God and you better decide to serve him. And Jesus makes the, the same line in the sand for you this morning. And Jesus is either who he said he was, the son of God, the only way to God, God wrapped in human flesh who came to die for sinful men, or we're wasting our time. I'm asking you this morning, First Baptist Church, are you hot or cold for Christ? It's an all or nothing. It's an all or nothing kind of decision. The magnitude of his claims, it was all or nothing. But I want you to understand this. The, the magnitude of his claims, it was all of him for all of me. It was all of him for all of me. You see, the suffering of Christ by itself is, is not the story. That's, that's why you get such a, a small window of what Jesus actually physically endured. We, we, aren't, we aren't told much about the scourging. We're, we're simply given half of a sentence. It's a, it's a fragmented idea. They took Jesus out and they scourged him to crucify him. And then right from there, we're moving on into the rest of the story. Why? Because the physical suffering, the physical abuse that Jesus took is not the whole story itself. It's not simply that Jesus suffered physically. It's how Jesus suffered for you and for me. It's how he suffered as us, for us. It's how that Jesus suffered as us. For us, he's God wrapped in human flesh. Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 2, that he, speaking of Christ, he being equal with God, thought himself of no reputation, but took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of man, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Christ humbled himself for you and for me. Christ suffered for us as us. He died in our place. It's 
the righteous for the unrighteous. It's the just for the just. There are many people in today's world who believe in the, the fact that Jesus died on the cross. But do you understand why Jesus died on the cross? I'm not simply asking you this morning if you believe that he died. I'm asking you this morning, do you know, do you believe why he died? Why did he have to die like this? First Peter chapter 2 answers this question for us. The apostle Peter writes it like this, speaking of Christ, that Christ did no sin. He was innocent. So Christ isn't dying on the cross because of sin in him. Christ did no sin and neither was guile found in his mouth. Christ, when he was reviled, reviled not again. And when he suffered, he threatened not, but he committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bear our sins on his own body on the tree that we, those of us who believed in Jesus, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness and by whose stripes we are healed. You know how your relationship with God is mended? By the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And you and I have sinned against God. All we like sheep had gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. We've all sinned. And our sin, the Bible says, separates us from a holy and a righteous God. And if you die separated, if you die in your sin, separated from a holy and righteous God in this life, you will enter into eternity, separated from God for all of eternity in a place that the Bible calls hell. And there was no way for you and for me to overcome our sin, to get back in good relationship with God. So God humbled himself. God sent Jesus to die on the cross in our place. And you say, Dave, why would God do that? And it's the most famous verse in all the Bible. John 3, 16. God sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sin because he so loved you. Christ so loved you that he submitted himself to the will of the Father. And the Father so loved you that he orchestrated a plan in which he sent his son to die on the cross for us. The gospel is not a how-to program. How to be spiritual, how to be righteous, how to be moral, how to be civil, how to be a better dad, how to be a better husband, how to be a better wife. The gospel is not a how-to program. The gospel is a he has proclamation. Christ has died for me. All of him for all of me. And I'm wondering this morning, have you believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm not asking you this morning if you go to church. I'm glad you're here. 
I'm not asking you this morning if you give to help the hungry or you give to help the needy. I'm not asking you if you're religious. I'm not asking you if you're moral. I'm not asking you any of these questions. I'm simply asking you this morning if you believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is what? That God humbled himself, became a man, lived a perfect sinless life, died an atoning death on the cross. He suffered as us, for us. And I'm believing in him as my only way to be made right with God for all of eternity. Have you believed the gospel? It's the magnitude of his claim. Why are they treating Jesus like this? Why are they, why are they weaving together crowns of thorns and smashing them down onto his skull? Why are they giving him empty, calloused worship? Because of the claims that he made about himself. The mocking shows us, second, not just the magnitude of his claims, but the mocking shows us the meekness of his ways. So Christ, on one hand, makes these great claims about himself. I am the son of God. I'm the only way to God. I'm the savior of the world. I'm the door. I'm the light. But Christ, on the other hand, is always meek in his ways. When you read verse 16, 17, and 18, you need to understand what they're saying. Look at verse 16. Look at verse 17, rather. They clothe him with a purple, uh, they clothe him with purple and a, a purple robe. They, they plaited a crown of thorns. They put it on his head. They began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. They smote him on the head with the reed. They spit on him. They bowed on their knees, worshiping him. You know what they're saying to him? They're saying, you can't possibly be a king. Because if you were a king, we wouldn't be able to do this to you. You can't possibly be the savior of the world. You can't possibly be the Messiah. You're too weak. If you were a king, we couldn't do this. And if you were a king, we couldn't do that. And if you were a savior, you'd stop this. And if you were really God, you'd know that was coming. If you were really a Messiah, you would prevent this. Kings don't die on crosses. Saviors of the world don't get hung with thieves. Messiahs can't be crucified. If you're really God, you'd be strong. And if you're really God, you'd be powerful. And if you were really God, you wouldn't try to, you wouldn't be dying in this way. What they're saying is God couldn't possibly be saving the world through weakness. But he was. It's the only way the world would be saved. The righteous for the unrighteous as unrighteous. 
What you need to understand is God works through weakness. Listen, friend, God works through weakness. These people are looking at the greatest thing that God has ever done in the history of the world or that God would ever do. And it doesn't fit in the categories of their little minds. And so they miss it. I worry for myself sometimes in this way. I worry for you. Because right now you might be looking at some pretty difficult things in your life. You might be looking at some pretty bad stuff that's happening in your life or happening to you. And we can find ourselves thinking the same thing. Well, if, if God was with me, then this wouldn't happen. God couldn't possibly be working in this. God couldn't possibly be using that. If he was God, then I wouldn't have got this diagnosis. And if he was God, I wouldn't have got that demotion. And if he were God, then these things would all be so different. Oh, don't make that mistake, friend. Don't be a mocker. When bad stuff comes in, don't you dare think that God couldn't possibly be working through it. And Jesus is taken into custody by men. But Jesus has placed himself under the custody of God. So as Jesus is suffering, Jesus is entrusting himself to God. When's the last time you, you deliberately looked at a situation in your life and said, if God is glorified in this, then bring it on. And you gladly took it on the chin. Gladly kept your mouth shut. You gladly turned the other cheek. Gladly gave God the glory. See the wonder of the cross. The wonder of the cross is God takes what the world intends for shame and embarrassment and humiliation and weakness. And he turns it all into joy. It's the foolishness of the cross. The cross is meant for shame. Jesus turns it to joy. The very worst thing that could happen is actually the very best thing that could ever happen. And if Jesus can do this in the moment like this of Mark 15, then why can Jesus not do the same thing in your life Today, take the worst thing and make it the best thing because you're trusting in him. But see, the worst thing doesn't come become the best thing when we, when we feel the need to interject ourselves into the situation. 
I don't deserve to be mocked. Imagine Jesus having responded this way. I don't don't deserve to be tried. Imagine Jesus having responded this way. And oftentimes in our own lives, we find ourselves with this kind of activist spirit. Always needing to right the record, always needing to highlight the wrong, always needing to set the things straight, always needing to be the one who's fixing it, always needing to be the one that does the turning around of the situation, always needing to be the one that pushes away, pulls back from the shame, instead of being as Christ who suffered as us for us, gladly, willingly, in submission to the Father, took it on the chin. And we, re- we respond to situations like this with retaliation, with retribution. I'm going to get him. I'm going to get her. I'm going to fix that. I'm going to change this. I'm going to tell them what I think about And when we interject ourselves into the situation, we rob from God the work that God is doing in turning our shame into joy. Christ absorbs gladly all of this. Why? Because he's working through it. He's working through it. So what I want you to know is God works through, but I want, you to, I want you to understand something else on this point. And that's this, that God knows too. God works through and God knows too. God knows what shame feels like. He understands Maybe your parents belittled you. Maybe your friends slandered you. Maybe unimaginable things happened to you. What's often the case, though, is not that something has happened to us, but often the case is it's sinful patterns of our own lives. We like to find other people to blame for the shame that we feel. But most of the time, it's not others, it's ourselves. An unbelievable amount of shame is piled onto Jesus. The crown of thorns, the purple robe, a scepter in his hand. the bowing in empty worship before him. Jesus died in the most shameful way possible. This is not to mention the nakedness on the cross, the humiliation, the embarrassment. What does the gospel tell us about these sorts of things that they did to Jesus? Because it helps us understand that we have a Christ who can relate with us. Christ knows. 
the weight of shame and guilt and embarrassment. He understands how it feels. I've never walked in your shoes. You've never walked in my shoes. You're not me and I'm not you. And aren't you glad for that? I'm glad I'm not you. Aren't you glad you're not me? I didn't grow up in your house. You didn't grow up in my house. You, you, can't, you can't ever fully feel or know the shame of what someone else feels or knows. But Jesus knows. Christ understands. We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet he was without sin. That's what's happening in the text. Jesus is gladly enduring the cross for us. That's how the author of Hebrews de defines it. He says that Christ, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Did you hear this? Who for joy endured the cross. Now, what part of the cross to you sounds like joy at this point? None of it. False accusations, make-believe fake trials, public shaming, a bag over the head, being punched in the face, being scourged, turned inside out, bleeding profusely, body laboring to survive, listening to the witness of liars and false accusers. What part of this sounds like joy? And yet, for Christ. It was joy. Why? Because Christ knows that on the other side of the cross, he gets you. He gets you. He endures the cross. He counts it joy because on the other side of the cross, he gets you. I remember when Amanda was about to deliver Gabriel. We go rushing into the hospital. And for those of you, you remember this, any time a, a baby's being born, you're always super nervous and like the stress and the anxiety is really high, but especially if it's your first one. Gabe's our first one. We go rushing to the hospital. I was so, so nervous. They take Amanda back this way and a couple nurses ex escort me that way and they said, you gotta put this on and scrub in and wear that and put this over your face and put this space suit on so you know I go walking in there they had Amanda on the table Amanda was a trooper she was so tough she stayed in labor for several hours and finally the baby's coming they're going he's going to be here any minute she's doing great she's being tough and I remember I'm right down there by Amanda and I'm holding her hand and I'm kissing her hand they said dad do you do you want to cut the umbilical cord I said no that's what I pay you for. You're the doctor. I'm a dad. Why are you here if I have to do your job? 
No, I don't want to just nothing. I want to just see the baby all wrapped up nice and neat. So I'm staying close to Amanda, trying not to look as much as I possibly can. I'm holding her hand, kissing her hand. You're doing such a great job, baby. Keep it up. You're almost there. He's almost here. We're going to have Gabriel just, just a little bit. Keep it up. Who for the joy that was set before him endured. Moms endure the pain of childbirth for the joy of holding a little baby. I'm down there next to Amanda. She's doing great, baby. Keep going. He's almost here. And Amanda was squeezing my hand so hard. She was like crushing my fingers. And I was trying not to be a little girl in the moment. But I, bet I said, babe, you're doing so good. But you're hurting my fingers. Can you stop squeezing my hand? She says, are you serious right now? I said, no, no, it's okay. Just go ahead, break all my fingers. I don't care. Moms gladly endure for the joy. Dads, we don't want to endure, but we want the joy. He endured the cross and counted it joy for you. For you. It's the magnitude of his claim. It's the mercy of his ways. Last one. It's the mystery of his plan. Why is all of this happening to Christ? Why is all of this happening? Well, it's according to his plan. Look down to verse number 28. And there's this little phrase at the beginning of this verse that shines the light onto fully explaining why everything else is happening. Verse 28 reads, And the scripture was fulfilled. Do you see that? The scripture was fulfilled. If you're not careful, you almost look at that like a throwaway section of the verse. But it's not, it's not meant to just help get Mark to a word total. He's writing that to help us understand that not one piece of this, not one player in any of this story is outside of the perfect plan of God. Even down to when the rooster crowed, all of it is in the perfect plan of God. Now what more could possibly strengthen your faith? What more could give you any more security than knowing everything that is happening in this text? God said was going to happen. 
Jesus doesn't save himself. Jesus doesn't avoid suffering. Jesus doesn't fight to save his reputation. He doesn't need the final say with those that are mocking and insulting him. Why? Because he was totally absorbed with the Father's plan for him. Jesus is the most secure person in the entire universe because Jesus knows who he is and Jesus knows what he's about. And how does Jesus know that? He knows it because of the scripture. Listen, friend, some of us in this room, we struggle with security. We struggle with knowing who we are. We struggle with knowing what we're supposed to do. We struggle with walking in the identity that God has given to us. How does a Christian find security in their life? We find security in the scripture. We find security in the word. And all of this was fulfilled, as the scripture said. As the scripture said. If you need security, and we all have different seasons and times that we do, the only place to find it is in the Word of God. Because sometimes what we do is we put our security in a person. How many of you know people will let you down? How many of you learned that already? God will never let you down. Sometimes what we do is we try to put our security in what a person has said. This person said, fill in the blank. But how many of you know, sometimes people are not good for their word. They say one thing, but they do another. The only place we find security is in the word of God which the Bible says is forever settled in heaven. Never changes. You need security? Get in the scriptures. Get in the scriptures. The scriptures help us understand the mystery of God's plan for us.